chosen the words from Exodus 33 verses 18 to chapter 4 to 34 verse 9 as his focus for his message on the nature of God. So then from Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiselled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favour in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, Forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Thanks, Carl. Uh, you hopefully will have received uh, one of these handouts on the way in. It just has a whole lot of has that Bible passage that we read on it and a few others. Um, so you might like to have that with you as we go through, and, uh, and we'll f- refer to some of that. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us now, uh, through your word, through the words that I speak also, so that we might know you and know who you are. Lord, the most precious thing, the most important thing, The most wonderful thing in all the world is to know you, our God, our creator, our maker. To know what you're like, but also to know you and to be in a relationship with you. And Lord, we ask 
that you work all those things in our hearts this morning. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. You're sitting in a cafe uh, and your friend turns to you and says, tell me about God. What's he like? What do you say? You've got 20 seconds to say what God is like. What do you say? You might say that God's nice. You might say that God's kind. You might say that he's forgiving. You might say that he's a loving father. You might say that he made the heavens and the earth. Or maybe you might say that he's angry. Well, you might not say it, but maybe you'd think it. That he's judgmental. That he says that he's merciful, but actually you kind of feel really on the day-to-day reality of life that actually God's kind of merciless. That he has unrealistic expectations. What do you say? What's God like? Just like our perception of the people around us and the people that we know can be wrong, that is who we think they are is not actually what they're really like. It can be wrong because of our prejudices against them. It can be wrong because of our misperceptions. It can be wrong because of our desires. Uh, Just like our perception of the people around us can be skewed, our perception of God can be skewed as well. What is God really like? Not just what do you think he's like, but what is he actually like? One place to start with thinking about what God is like is with the names of God. There are so many names or titles that are given to God in the Bible, names like the Most High God, Yahweh, or I Am, God of Eternity, God of Israel, the God who provides, the Lord is my banner, the Lord is peace, the Lord is righteousness, the Lord of armies, the Holy One of Israel, the Ancient of Days. We could spend ages thinking about what all of those names and all those titles tell us about who God is. And that would be really worthwhile because they all tell us something important about the nature and the character and the person of God. But this morning, because we have a limited amount of time, I just want to focus on these words from Exodus 34, at least as our starting place, in trying to discover who God is. Because, you see, here in this chapter of Exodus, God says something important crucial about who he is and what he's like. What God says here are not just sort of random words. It's not that there was a whole list of things that God had that he could say about himself. And just on this particular day, he decided to say these things to Moses. Moses says, who are you, God? And God says, well, today I'll say this. No, what God says here, these words that God speaks to Moses, get to the very core of who God is. So today we're going to look at those words in Exodus, we're going to look at what God says about himself, and we're going to move out then from there to reflect on some of the other parts of the Bible and what they say about God as well. So at the beginning of this passage, Moses asks for something extraordinary. He asks to see the glory of God. He wants to catch a glimpse of the wonder and the majesty of the God who made the heavens and the earth. 
But although God tells Moses in verse 20 that he, he can't see that, uh, God won't show him that because Moses can't see that and live, he can't see God's face, God will nevertheless show Moses all his goodness. He can't see God's glory in its full measure, but he can, can see God's goodness. And so God says in verse 19, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God will show Moses all his goodness, and God's goodness is bound up and expressed in his name, which he proclaims to Moses as he passes by. Now, that doesn't sound particularly exciting to us, is it? God says, I'm going to show you all my goodness, I'm going to move past, and I'm going to tell you my name. Seems a bit underwhelming, maybe, doesn't it? I mean, most of us, you know, if someone said to me, I'm going to, I'm going to pronounce my name before you, we'd think, well, that kind of already know your name. But what God is saying to Moses, I'm going to tell you who I am. Uh, to most of us, a, a name is just a label. It's just the, it's the label that we go by. But in ancient times, and still in some parts of the world today, a name says a lot about who a person is. Uh, so Jesus renames two of his disciples sons of thunder because they're people who are prone, presumably, to fiery outbursts. Uh, Linda Poole was telling me the other day that in South Sudan, some people still have names that mean things like born at the side of the road or something like that. That doesn't tell you so much about who that person is now, but it tells you something about their history, what's shaped them, what's formed them. I think for us, nicknames tend to do that. I had a nickname at university, Impractical. <laughs> the awkward laughter I take, take it means that you don't understand the connection. But we use nicknames, don't we, to say something about the character of who a person is, what they're like. And when God says to Moses, I'm going to proclaim my name to you, that's what he means. I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm going to show you who I am and what's at the very core of my person. So what is at the core of God's person? Who is he? Well, God says in verse 6, God passes before Moses. Moses is hidden in the cleft of this rock. And as God passes by, he says these words in Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. In what does God's goodness consist and what is at the core of who he is? In the first place, God's goodness consists in his mercy and his patience and his forgiveness and his love. We saw that expressed earlier in Psalm 103, which we read together. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. That psalm even quotes from these words here in Exodus 34, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. 
slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What is God like? God is compassionate and gracious. God always understands and he overflows with grace and kindness. Most of us, I think, are not that merciful when someone wrongs us. Sometimes we are, but often we're not. Most of us are not patient. We're not slow to anger. If someone cuts across in front of us on the road, that often shows how patient or impatient we really are. We get angry with those people. We don't know them. We've probably never met them. They've probably never done anything to us in our lives then squeeze into a hole that they thought was maybe bigger than it really was. They've never done anything worse to us than maybe being inattentive for one moment in their life. Lapsed in concentration. Something that we all do, to be honest, when we're driving. They've never done anything worse to us than that, and yet we're furious. And we may not yell and scream at them out the car window, but we yell and scream at them inside our own car or inside our own heads or inside our own hearts. Not so God. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We've done and continue to do all kinds of evil things against God, and yet God's disposition towards us remains slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And yet it's interesting, isn't it, that so often we think of God as quick to anger and slow to forgive. We get God completely the wrong way around. We sin and our immediate thought is that God will strike us down. But logically... God must be, uh, God can't be, sorry, quick to anger because we only need to look at the world that we live in. God has been so patient to humanity after we've rebelled and rejected him. He's waited for thousands of years without wiping us out. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But not only that, God says he will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. That doesn't mean that there's no hell. God doesn't mean that he's never angry. It doesn't mean that there's no such thing as eternal punishment for those who reject Jesus. Jesus says there is. It's just another way of saying that when God forgives, he really forgives. When God forgives, he doesn't stay angry. When God forgives, he doesn't keep accusing us. Compare that with our forgiveness. For us, it can be a battle to really forgive someone. Uh, we might say that we forgive uh, someone. We, we might even really want to do that. We might be totally committed to that idea, to forgiving someone. 
But we can still easily find ourselves, can't we, getting angry about what they've done? We can still find ourselves accusing them in our hearts for the hurt that they've caused. And I think because we find it instinctively so hard to forgive others, we transfer our difficulties onto God and think that if we find it hard to forgive God, then others, then God must find it hard to forgive us. But that's not true. God says that when he forgives, he doesn't stay angry. It's remarkable, isn't it? So outside our experience. And when God forgives, he doesn't keep accusing us. In fact, his love is so enormous that our sins are removed to the other side of the world. As far as the east is from the west. Further than you can imagine. Or as God says elsewhere, he buries them in the depths of the sea. God forgives and he remembers our sins no more. And when God forgives, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. And yet how prone we are to think that that's exactly what God will do. (laughs) We live as if God will treat us according to what we deserve, what we've done against him. And so we sin and we wait for God to strike us down. We wait for our lives to turn into custard. We wait for God to pay us back. We wait for retribution. We live as though God doesn't forgive. We live as though God remembers everything. We live as though the cross achieved nothing. But the miracle is that if we're in Christ, if we've entrusted ourselves to him, then God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve and he doesn't repay us according to what we've done. And God's commitment to forgiveness and his willingness to forgive is so extraordinary. The writer of Psalm 103 says it's as high as the heavens are above the earth. It's higher than you can imagine. And if we're tempted to doubt that, we only need to look at the great lengths to which God has gone to make forgiveness a reality. Think of that most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. To give up your own son to save the lives of your enemies is not the action of someone who is half committed to forgiveness. It's not the action of a crotchety old monster. It's the action of someone who's full of grace and mercy. It's the action of someone who's overflowing with mercy. It's the action of someone who doesn't stay angry forever, but who delights to show mercy. So God's goodness and identity uh, consists in his mercy and forgiveness. But Exodus 34 shows us something else as well. That is, God's goodness and identity consist not only in mercy and forgiveness, but also in judgment. So look again at those verses, at verse chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. And God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, 
the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. God not only forgives, he also punishes. He's not only merciful, he's also just. Many of us probably find that idea quite hard to fathom, quite hard to come to terms with. We love the idea of mercy. Mercy is great probably because we know that we need mercy. But few of us like the idea of justice or judgment or punishment. That's probably because it comes too close to what we actually deserve. But our love of mercy and our discomfort with justice is probably also anchored in the fact that many of us have never really experienced terrible evil. During the Second World War, the Nazis exterminated six million Jews. That's about a quarter of the population of Australia. Uh, And millions of other peoples beside. The challenges of killing that many people and disposing of their bodies was enormous. But at Auschwitz, led by the Camp camp Commandant Rudolf Hess, they made an art of efficient mass murder. They turned their skills at efficiency to ending lives. As trainloads of Jewish and other prisoners would come into the camps, they would sort them out. They would disembark and they would line up as the SS soldiers would separate them into who could work and who couldn't. And the people who couldn't work were sent straight to the gas chambers. That effectively meant that every child who ended up on a train to Auschwitz within hours of arriving at that camp was sent to their death. Terrific. Utterly horrific. What do you do with that kind of evil? What do you do with people who perpetrated those kinds of crimes and who remained to the end of their lives utterly remorseless? As Rudolf Hurst lay awaiting his fate on trial at the end of the war, he affirmed his belief, his deep conviction that what they had done was right. Adolf Eichmann, one of the architects of the Holocaust, would say when on trial for his life in Israel in the 1960s that he regretted nothing. He wrote, I will not humble myself or repent in any way. What do you do with that kind of evil? What should they have done at, their war tri- at the war trials in, in Nuremberg? Should they have just heard the evidence and let them go? Doesn't evil demand justice? And what about all those people, those priests and pastors and others who supposedly working 
in the name of God, have abused countless children and who remain utterly unrepentant and utterly remorseless. Doesn't evil demand justice? What do you do with that kind of evil? Miroslav Volf uh, is a theologian who grew up in Croatia and he saw the abomination of violence firsthand. And he writes that the idea of a God who doesn't judge is not a biblical idea, but an idea bred in Western suburbia. He writes that among the people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit, such an idea will inevitably die. The idea of a God who does not judge will die amid the deep desire for the end of evil and for justice. If you've suffered great evil, the desire for justice doesn't seem so unthinkable as it does to everybody else. It actually just seems quite obvious. And so God says he will not leave the guilty unpunished. He will not let evil just slip by unaddressed. And yet... And yet for all that, when God describes himself here as a God of justice, it's clear that his justice is overshadowed somehow by his mercy. Martin Luther called God's justice his strange work. It's not that God's mercy and compassion make him unjust. It's not that God's mercy and compassion leave God to lead God to leaving sin unpunished. But God's mercy and compassion overflow above and beyond his complete and perfect justice. God tells Moses that he shows love for thousands of generations. But he only punishes a few for a few. Which is a poetic way, really, of saying that God's predisposition is toward love more than justice, but without God leaving justice behind. It's not that God never gets angry. God doesn't say to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, who's never angry. God says he's slow to anger. God waits. God gives an opportunity for repentance. He waits and he waits. He's patient with us. He's patient with the world so that people might find his grace rather than his wrath. The Apostle Peter writes, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God's goodness and his identity consist in his mercy and forgiveness, but also, importantly, in his justice and his punishment of evil. But how do those two things go together? How can God not only forgive sin and at the same time not let the guilty go unpunished? The answer which the Bible gives is extraordinary. The answer is that God sent his own son to die in the place of sinners to take the punishment for sin so that everyone who believes in him can receive mercy and not wrath. 
The Apostle Paul explains that in his letter to the, to the Roman church, the early Roman church. It's there in that handout. He writes in Romans 3.21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Paul says that in God's forbearance and patience, he has left, uh, had left sins unpunished, those sins committed before Jesus came. Take, for example, the famous incident in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the kings of God's people, David, he slept with another man's wife, he got her pregnant, and in the end he tried to cover it up by having her husband killed before anyone could work out what had happened. And God forgave David. Shockingly, actually. You see, because where was the justice? What about the man that was killed? What about the marriage that was wrecked? What about the fallout from that? in other families and in other relationships. God forgave David, but where was the justice? Paul says God left those sins unpunished, but not forever. You see, they couldn't stay unpunished. That would be unjust. And so at the right time, God sent Jesus to demonstrate his justice and to demonstrate his mercy at the same time. God sent Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement, or as some older versions have it, God sent Jesus as a propitiation. It's not a word most of us normally use. It's a pretty old school word, but what it means is that God sent Jesus to take away God's wrath at our sin. When Jesus hung on the cross, Jesus took the punishment and God's wrath at our evil and our injustice. God did that to demonstrate his justice by dealing with injustice and sin and yet showing mercy at the same time. For God to just forgive sin without sending Jesus would be to imply that sin was okay, that evil was okay, that injustice was okay. But it's not okay. Sin and evil and injustice is so not okay that Jesus had to pay the price for our injustice so that we might receive mercy. Well, what does that mean? I think there's two big implications for what that means. In the first place, it means that God's mercy can extend to anyone, 
who comes to him through Jesus. It means that God's mercy can extend to anyone who comes to him through Jesus. God's justice is so fully met in Jesus that anyone who comes to God through him can be forgiven. I've mentioned it before, but during the Nuremberg trials, there was a prison chaplain, uh, Henry Gorecki was his name, assigned to some of the Nazi prisoners. Uh, and a number of those prisoners, by all accounts, found God's grace in Jesus before they went to the gallows. It's extraordinary. Not all of them, by any means, but some did. How people find that idea deeply offensive. How could God forgive monsters like that? The answer is because God's justice for their evil was met in the terrible suffering of Jesus Christ. So enormous, so big, so comprehensive was the death of Jesus that it can cover even that. The fact that God's mercy and justice meet in the cross means that anyone who comes to God through Jesus can be forgiven. You can be forgiven, no matter what you've done. No matter what the evil, you can be forgiven by God through Jesus' atoning death on the cross. And importantly, other people who've sinned against you can be forgiven as well. No matter what they've done, if they turn to Jesus. Because God delights to show mercy. But in the second place, the fact that God's mercy and justice find uh, meet in the cross, in the second place, that means that the only place that we can find mercy is in Jesus. There's no other place. There's no other place where God's mercy and God's justice are resolved except in the cross. Without the cross, without Jesus... You stand before God as a person who deserves his judgment and wrath. You and I, all of us, have rejected and rebelled against God. We've hated and hurt the people whom God has made. We've destroyed God's world. And God des deserves justice. Other people deserve justice. The world deserves justice for what we've done. I hate to keep talking about the Nazis. But I was watching a documentary the other day and as I was watching I thought, you know, I have some German friends and, and they often say to me, we're sorry for what our country did. It's interesting, isn't it? And as I sat there and I watched that documentary, I thought to myself, you know what? This is not just them. This is not just their country. This is me. This is all of us. And I sat there and I found myself praying, God, forgive us. We've done this. Not just them. We're all complicit in our hating, in our rejection of God. We've made this world what it is. All of us, all of us stand 
under the condemnation of God without Jesus Christ. How can there be forgiveness? In the cross of Jesus, the justice of God and the mercy of God finally meet. Your only hope and my only hope in the face of justice is Jesus Christ. He's the only place we can go. Well, whoever you might think God is, or whoever you might have thought that he was, the Bible shows us what he's really like. He's a God who's compassionate and gracious. He's a God who's slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. He's a God who punishes injustice and evil, but who also forgives sins for all those who come to him through his own son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we we come to you with empty hands. No. No, actually, Lord, we come with hands full. Full of sin. Full of iniquity. We come as people who are rebels against you. People who hate, who murder in our own hearts who are quick to anger and slow to love. Lord, as individuals and as a whole human race, we've perpetrated and encouraged such great evil and such great misery. We've destroyed your world and we've trampled on everything good that you've ever done and so Lord we ask that you would forgive us again and Lord we take such take such comfort in knowing that you do that when we come to you in Jesus Christ there's mercy and justice that you don't sweep everything under the carpet, but you deal with it at the cross. And you extend your open arms to us, arms spread out wide on the cross, and you invite us to be your children. And you call us your friend. Lord, help us to know who you really are, a God of love and grace and compassion. And help us to be able to share that great truth with others too. That they might know not simply your justice, but your mercy as well. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.